Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we begin a brand new series, Walking Through the Book of Ephesians. We will look at the unique characteristic that this book serves in our Bible as an encyclical treatise on the Christian faith. And then we're going to dive into chapter 1 and highlight the Apostle Paul's main thesis that's directing the Christian to a life focused on the glory of God with Jesus alone as our exalted head. Thanks for listening as we take this, the Apostle Paul's masterclass on Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. Changed everything. It's never been uh, happened before. Somebody who has died comes back to life. In fact, the greatest penalty, the greatest consequence, the greatest fear for all humanity, it's death. There's no second chances. There's no coming back. There's no hope at all until the resurrection. And it was the resurrection of Jesus that transformed the disciples of Jesus. And therefore, then, the entire world as the gospel and this message of forgiveness of sins that is found in the power that has been given to us in Jesus Christ has spread to the ends of the earth. Even here, even Segola. It's because of the resurrection. Before the resurrection, the disciples, when Jesus was arrested, did what? Do they stick around? Do they do like Peter said, and I'll die for you, Jesus? Do you know what they do before the resurrection? They scatter and they hide and they run. But after the resurrection, everything is new. Everything changes. And so what you have is this small little group of Christ-centered disciples now commissioned by God, now equipped from on high by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have this small little group of Christians that start to share the message. And they share it with everybody. And do you know what? A bunch of people decide that's the message we've been waiting for. And do you know what they do? They turn from their sins when they hear the message of truth. They hear the good news of the gospel and they say, I let go of my sin. I lay it down. I turn and I'm going to make this Messiah, the one who is raised from the dead. I'm going to make him my Lord. And that message spreads and it spreads and it spreads. And pretty soon you have little groups gathering in cities far cast from Jerusalem. These small little groups are called churches. And they meet and they gather in one another's homes. They meet and they gather to worship the risen Lord Jesus. Today we're going to begin a new series. And it is going to be walking verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. As we have opportunity to study this New Testament book, it's going to carry us right up until the Christmas season. And one of the things that I want you to watch for is something that is so, so special in this particular book. Of all of the books that we have in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians alone stands apart. It stands alone in a characteristic that none of the other books really share. Now, all of the New Testament are like gemstones, right? It's just treasure upon treasure that's been given to us in the New Testament. But there's something particularly glistening about the book of Ephesians. When we study the book of Ephesians, we find that it has a unique characteristic different from all the other, especially of Paul's writings. It was authored unquestionably by the Apostle Paul. Paul writes it as he's imprisoned in Rome. Uh, We believe that it falls somewhere around the time of the year 60 to 62. Uh, This would be after the majority of his missionary journeys. And this is also after he had spent considerable time planting and establishing the church in Ephesus. He writes this letter. Now, if you look at your Bibles, uh, if you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, uh, you may notice, if you have a study Bible, that in the first verse, as Paul addresses himself to the congregation, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus. You might have a little superscript, a little note, right after the town Ephesus. Anybody have that? Just looking around here? Good, a couple of hands raise up. If you were to follow that study note down into the margin, it might read something to the effect of some of the oldest and some of the best manuscripts we have 
they don't have the name of the town. There was something really unique that Paul apparently decided to do while he was in prison. Uh, We have four letters that we have recorded for us in the New Testament that Paul wrote from jail. This is one of them. But as Paul is locked up, Paul decides that he is going to write a treatise, really a summary. It's a statement of the entirety of the Christian faith. And this is meant to be a letter that wouldn't land in any one singular city. This letter is meant to be one that would travel down an ancient mail route to many different of these unique gatherings, these small little churches that are beginning to crop up in all these cities across the mail route. And what he apparently intended was that in writing this letter, it was going to have the name of the town left blank so that as Tachikis, this is the, the mail carrier, as he approached each town, he would write in the name of the city to which the letter would be delivered. And then there would be a copy that would make it to the next city and the next and the next. You see, this letter isn't one that's addressed to any one specific people. It's not addressed to any one specific false teaching or heresy or controversy. In fact, if you study the New Testament and Paul's letters, it is incredibly uncharacteristic for him not to include a bunch of personal greetings at the beginning. He normally would say Paul and Timothy and Silas. It's only in a very few letters that he only writes the Apostle Paul. And part of that is because this letter was going to go to many churches. It's also extremely rare that in Paul's writings, you do not have him addressing some specific controversy. Every time that he writes to a church, it's either in response to questions that they've been asking him or some personal interaction that he's had with the church. But in the letter to the book of Ephesians, there's no issues. There's no one particular subject that's highlighted as a problem for which he's writing the letter. And one of the most telling features as to why we believe uh, that this is a circular or an encyclical letter that was meant to travel around is that at the end of Paul's letter, he doesn't have any personal greetings. That's one of the characteristic marks of Paul's writings, that as it makes its way to a church, he says, hey, make sure you say hi to Tom when you're there and don't forget to tell Brother Phil, good job, right? That's the type of thing he would include at the end of his letter. But in the letter to the Ephesians, there's none of that. Not only that, but uh, if you look with me in chapter 1, you will see in verse 15 something that's very peculiar. He says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. Hold on a minute. Time out. You heard of their faith? You heard of their love? That phrase is actually repeated in another letter that Paul writes. It's in his letter to, to the church of Colossae. Do you know why Paul writes in that letter, ever since I heard about your faith, I didn't stop giving thanks for you? The reason is because Paul didn't plant the church in Colossae. He only heard that there was a church there. He heard that they had some problems, and so that's why he writes the letter. There was a neighboring city, though, in Col- to Colossae. It's kind of the Channing to Arsagola. Uh, it was uh, the city Laodicea. And If you wouldn't mind, remember, this is just adult Bible study. You guys cool with that? Yeah. Okay. Hold your spot here in Ephesians. Just flip a couple books further to the book of Colossians very quickly. And I I want you to look at something that Paul writes at the end of the letter to the church in Colossae. Colossians chapter 4. Don't leave your spot in Ephesians 1. We're going to be going right back. Colossians chapter 4. Look with me in verse 16. Paul says, After this letter, the letter to the Colossians, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Now, we don't have a book in our Bible called First Laodiceans. We don't have any letter from Paul that is written to the Laodiceans. Some scholars believe this. I am pretty persuaded that it's true that what we have in the letter to the Ephesians is actually the letter that Paul wrote to the Laodiceans. And part of that is because of the greeting he gives. Ever since I heard about your faith. There was a church in Laodicea, but Paul didn't found it. There was a church in Colossae, but Paul didn't found that either. The church in Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, Paul spent three years teaching them day and night. Can you imagine if we did that? Wouldn't that be awesome? I'll see you guys tomorrow in the morning, 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. That'd be amazing if we, if we gathered and studied 
Would you come for the Apostle Paul? Come on, I'd go for the Apostle Paul. Three years in Ephesus he spent. So it's very peculiar why he would write in this letter uh, to them ever since I heard about your faith. I'm, I'm pretty persuaded that what we have recorded for us here, it is the letter that was written to the Laodiceans meant to be an encyclical circular letter to travel to all the churches because what Paul lays out for us that's so special in this book is a summary of the Christian faith. Have you guys seen on the internet, they've got these master classes. Anybody run across those? They'll take a particular subject, whether that's cooking or filmmaking or whatever it is, and they'll find whoever is the leading expert in that field. They'll record a bunch of videos and then you can subscribe for a hundred bucks or however many. And you can take a class to learn how to cook the way they cook or learn how to paint the way they paint, whatever that is. I think that's what we have here. You and I have a master class from an expert, from the Apostle Paul, on the basics and the summary of Christianity for all of these brand new churches. Remember, the gospel is doing what? The gospel is spreading all over. And so you've got a lot of these young congregations that are needing to know, what's the truth? What, what, what is the fundamentals? What's the foundation? Give me, give me a master class on what does it mean to be a Christian? And that's what you and I have here. And so actually what we have recorded for us uh, in your Bibles is probably the one that was in Ephesus. It, I, I don't want you to think that this is some error that's in there. That's just the copy that made its way, passed down, to which the church fathers continued to copy and eventually became codified into the New Testament. So this, this is the correct version that we have from Ephesus. And a scribe at that time, you'll remember, has got to get everything written down just right. So however many copies made of their way all over, I just am so excited to teach through this book. Because if you've ever wondered, what's the basics of the faith? Like, what is Christianity 101? That's what we're going to have the opportunity to look into. And not just from a happenstance pastor, but we're going to hear directly from the master himself, the Apostle Paul. One of the things that I think that you'll discover as we walk through this is you're going to be, a lot, you're going to be like, especially if you've been coming to church for a while, you're going to be like, duh, I, I know this, right? This is... This is obvious. Christianity 101? Come on, pastor. Spice it up a little bit for me. If that's you this morning, let me, let me just encourage you to say, you might need a reminder of the basics. I think I do. And as I've had opportunity to study this once more again, um, the Lord has shown me with fresh eyes in the new vision those very simple truths that you just kind of tuck away and, oh, that's an easy one. I don't need to be reminded of that. You know what? Time out. I think maybe I do need to be reminded of it. So let me encourage you that as we get a chance to go through this new series, uh, that you look at the truths, the foundational aspects of the faith with fresh eyes, and you allow the Lord and the Holy Spirit to apply into your life those things that you might need to be reminded of as well. Well, with that in mind, we are going to uh, begin in chapter 1. Uh, we are going to read through verses 1 all the way through verse 14. As we, uh, as we do, one thing to just highlight and point out is that if you were to read this in Greek, which we won't be doing, we're going to read it in English, but if you read it in Greek, it is all one sentence. All 14 verses, one sentence. Paul would have had a lot of marks up in his uh, grammar class on that probably. Can't get away with that. It's a long run on sentence. And I might just tell you, good news, short sermon today, just one sentence. <laughs> gotcha. Little do you know, it's 14 verses. So with that in mind, let's read together. I'm going to start in Ephesians 1. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he 
predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will reach their fulfillment. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen? Amen. I, I need to begin by just letting you know that there is far more in these short 14 verses than what we are going to be able to cover this morning. Um, I am looking at this asking the question, what is Paul's main idea? What is Paul's primary thesis at the beginning of the entire letter? And if we can identify that, what we will see is that all of the other observations that we will make will lead to conclusions that revolve around that thesis. And so to begin with, I want to offer to you this as a primary observation. To be a, uh, to be a Christian, if you're a Christian, that means that Jesus alone is your, and this is a metaphor now, is your head. That's a, that's a funny little phrase right there. Is your head. Well, what that means is that we're going to be talking about an organism. We're going to be talking about a body and what Paul wants us to understand, what Paul wants all the churches to understand is that the primary understanding, foundational 101, is that if you're a Christian, Jesus is your head. Uh, This shows up in verse 9 and 10. It's actually a theme that's going to be repeated uh, throughout Uh, I simply want to point out to you how this primary thesis, as he begins his letter, starts in verse 9. He says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put in effect when the times had reached their fulfillment. Why? Here it is. To bring all things together in heaven and on earth under one head, namely Christ. Now, your version might read a little bit differently there. Um, In the NIV, as you heard me read it, it says under one head. And there's a really hard to pronounce Greek word that's filled with uh, more than we care to talk about this morning. But the root of that word is is the Greek word kephale, which means head. And what what this word is referring to is a like gathering together for the purpose of unity. A gathering together of all those things that are multi, multifaceted and diverse so that we can have and form a unified structure under them. That's what the word head means. Now, I want to see if we can just see an illustration, an example of this. I'm going to, I'm going to ask everybody if you would just take out your green hymnal. So go ahead and you're going to have to juggle a couple books, but pick out the green hymnal in front of you and just open it up to your favorite hymn. I'm going to give you like 30 seconds here to flip through it. You might go to the back, find whichever one is your favorite hymn. There's only 800 in there to choose from. So you might be able to find one or two. I'm looking over at my choir members here. I see them still looking. As you're turning here to find your favorite hymn, uh, one of the things to point out is how this hymn might have impacted your life. It might be one that you're very familiar with. Uh, It might be one that you remember your parents or grandma and grandpa singing that just really resonates with you. Just a cherished old hymn of the faith. Does everybody have one? Say amen if you do. If you don't, say, give me a minute, Pastor. Oh, nobody. Everybody got them? Everybody got your favorite hymn? All right. On the count of three, I want you to start singing it. Ready? One, two, three. Holy, holy. 
Yikes. That didn't work. That didn't work. Helen, help us out here. exactly what that very hard to pronounce Greek verb is saying. We just brought everybody together in unity under a single head. Helen, thank you for a little round of applause here for Helen helping me out this morning. Here's the problem in life. Here's a problem with you. Here's a problem with all these little churches is that we are all so different from one another. We all have those unique characteristics that we think are the most important thing. I, I know there's a Packer game today. Anybody else with me? Like, you know, that's the most important thing. Well, if you're not a Packer fan, well, you're going to disagree with me on that one. Everybody has a difference of what they think is the most important priority in their life. But do you know what God's going to do for these churches? He's going to gather them together under the teaching of the Apostle Paul so that they come under a single head. In fact, it's more than just the church because here's the great truth of Jesus' resurrection. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Amen? Whether you worship him or not, he is the king. He is the Lord. And so Paul's great desire, and this is the subject that we are going to give our attention to, the thesis here at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, is that for the church and all the churches along that mail road, all the way to Segola, that if you are a Christian, then you only have one head, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? So with that in mind, I want to point out to you a few conclusions that we can draw from this first long run-on sentence, the first 14 verses. Uh, The first is this. To be a Christian means you follow Jesus. To be a Christian means that you and I learn to follow Jesus. We have already read it in verse 10. He says to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. If you jump ahead a little bit further, you'll see at the very end of chapter 1, look at verse 22. He said, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the what? To be the head over everything for the church. If you jump ahead to chapter 4, flip a few pages for me. Chapter 4, look at verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the, what's it say? Who is the head, and that is Christ. Again, it's a funny little illustration, being the head. What that means for you is that you need to be willing to exchange your priorities for Christ's. You need to learn to come in step, to come in line with not your plan, but Christ's plan, because he is your head. Now, as I look out amongst the church this morning, I see a bunch of rebels. That's what I see. Any, any nonconformists out there? Come on, be honest now. Someone tells you, you need to, you need to do it this way, and you say, just because you told me to do it that way, I'm going to do it the other way, right? Yeah, there, there, there's a problem in this, especially within our nature. Not that God hasn't crafted and created you to know how to be a leader, but in this instance, God is commanding you to be a follower, to learn how to follow after Jesus and what Jesus desires. There's this place uh, in the Gospels, Matthew, or it's in Luke chapter 6. Jesus, talking to the crowd, asks this very bewildering question. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't, don't do what I say? I kind of feel like I want to tell him, I don't think you're using that word right. Because what does it mean to call someone your Lord? It means that you're willing to follow them where they lead. And so here is the oxymoronic form of so many churches where people call themselves Christians, but they don't really follow Jesus. I would submit to you, you're you're not a Christian then. You, You could grow up in a kind of Christian culture. You may have been mistaught that you're a Christian, but if you're not following Jesus, you're not a Christian. 
Because to be a Christian means to follow Jesus. In fact, this passage from John's gospel, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they what? They follow me. If if you were to call upon another sheep that doesn't know, that sheep's like, I don't know that voice. That's why I don't follow you. And it very well could be that the reason why so many people, unfortunately, even in churches today, liberal churches, progressive churches, where they follow the whims and the waves of the culture and have abandoned the unpopular call and command of Jesus is because they really don't know Jesus's voice because they really don't belong to him as their sheep. Uh, The other day I was taking a walk with uh, Emily. Uh, We were walking past the stadium in in Iron Mountain. And if you ever walk upon the sidewalk there at the Iron Mountain Stadium, you'll see that on the on the sidewalk, there are these embossed names of the individuals who long ago provided money to, to do all the upgrades and everything there, right? So you can read the names in the cement as you're walking. Well, I was kind of looking at the birds or something, something in the trees, and I tripped. Now, I told my foot where to go, but my foot didn't go where I told it. What was the problem? The foot wasn't listening to the head. And what happened to the body? (laughs) It tripped. This is not a hard illustration to understand. Hear me clearly. You are not the head. If you're a Christian, that means he is our head. And what that means for you and I is that means that we must learn to follow Jesus. And I'm talking to my rebels this morning. I'm a little bit like that too. All right, I'm a little bit of a nonconformist. Uh, This is one place in your life where you want to make sure that when the master calls, you get in line. Uh, And this is not the time to say, well, if everyone's going that way, I'm going to go the opposite only because I don't want to be told what to do. That's an aspect of your heart and life that the gospel message has come to redeem. Because Jesus tells us what to do. And if we don't follow him, he's going to say, well, why do you call me Lord? Why are you calling me Lord, but you don't do what I say? Second, to be a Christian means God is the one who determines your purpose. Some of you are saying, thank goodness, because I have not known what my purpose is. Please tell me. Others are saying, yeah, let me hear what you got to say first, and then I'll decide if it's my purpose or not. Here's what it means. To be a Christian means that God is the one who has determined for you what your purpose is. Now, this isn't always very popular. Um, At the end of John's gospel, I'm sure you remember the story of Jesus coming to Peter as Peter denied him three times. Jesus now is reinstating Peter and he asks him the question, Peter, Jesus says, do you love me? Remember this story? Peter says, you know I love you. Three times he asks this. And every time Jesus says, well, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to do what I've been doing. Follow my instructions and do those things. Then Jesus says to him to indicate the kind of death that he will receive someday. uh, Some kind of bad news to Peter. And then we have this little interchange. Uh, This is John 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following him. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, this is John. Peter looks and sees John. He asked, Lord, what about him? Meaning, well, why, why are you saying how I'm going to die? Like, what about, what about John? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? But what's the command? You must follow me. And what were Jesus's instructions to Peter? What was Peter's purpose? Do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Peter would rather go fishing. Some of you would rather be fishing right now, maybe. Well, what's the, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that God is the one who determines what my purpose is. I want you to look back with me back into this text because there's a term that gets used many times, especially in Reformed circles, that I think has been a little bit skewed as to how the Scriptures use the word. It's the word predestined. That's an awesome word, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. Being an American democratic society here. I don't like being told what to do. I'd rather decide myself. I don't want nobody predetermining what I do, predestining me. Hold on, time out. You already said Jesus is your head. Look with me back at these verses. In verse four, he says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he 
predestined us. If you jump over to verse 11, Paul's going to talk about himself. Paul's going to talk about uh, he, he and his traveling missionary team. He says in verse 11, in him also, we were chosen having been predestined. It's an amazing word. To be predestined means to have your purpose already defined. To be chosen by God for a reason. One of the key aspects that gets confused with the doctrine of election and predestination is we think it only has to do with salvation. Well, I'm, a, I'm elect of God. Woohoo! Going to heaven! No, 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 no. For some reason, we limit the idea of predestination to only refer to salvation. But if you read in the Bible when it's used, do you know it's not talking about salvation? It's talking about your purpose. In fact, one of the very best places is in the book of Romans. Hold your spot here in Ephesians and just flip back a couple of books to the, to the book of Romans chapter 8. And I want to see if you can identify the purpose for your predestination. This is Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 28. If you're there, say amen. Oh, that was pretty weak. We'll wait. All right, Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I don't even need to go further than that, do I? Called according to what? To be saved, to go to heaven, to play a harp on a cloud someday. That's what I'm saying. That is not what you are elected for. That's not what you're chosen for. That may be a subsequent result of knowing Jesus to be found in him. That's great. That's awesome. I'm not diminishing salvation at all. I'm simply wanting us to say what the Bible says when it refers to the doctrine of predestination. Look with me on the next verse, verse 29. For those God foreknew, that's a fancy way of saying elect or chosen, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the likeness of who? Yeah, is there another way we could say that? To look more like Jesus. That's what he predestined you for. Jump back now to Ephesians and let's see if that matches up with what Paul says here. Ephesians 1, verse 5. He predestined us for what? To be adopted as sons. Wow. Your Bible may say sons and daughters. That's exactly what it means to be in the family of God. That's what he has predestined you for. To be adopted into a brand new household. Into a new family. In fact, look with me over in verse 11. We have predestined you again there. Let's see what it is. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined to go to heaven. Is that what it says? To having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's almost exactly what it said in Romans. Do you remember? All things work how? Together for the what? For the good of those who love him and who are called. That's the same thing that Paul's saying here. Why would that be an important message? To point out to the church. Well, because you live in a world that's very corrupt. They're going to reject the message. They're going to reject you just the way they rejected Jesus. You might falsely think, we got it wrong. Time out, time out. All things are going to work together for the good. Because God is the one who defines your purpose. God is the one who has chosen to use you for a specific reason. Even if you might not like it. Do you remember Peter? Well, what about John? What about him? If I, whatever I want to do with John is what I want to do with John. You follow me. That's the message. And so that's the message I want to give you as a pretty important conclusion to this thesis of the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He defines how to use you. He's the one who characterizes you in a way to bring him glory. Uh, this past week, I was asked to open a wine bottle for my wife. You might think, well, why is your wife buying wine? I'll let you ask her at fellowship hour. You can take that up with her. No, it's because she was, she was cooking something. But one of the utensils we don't have in our house is a corkscrew. We don't have a lot of wine very often. Now, some of you might be out here being like, I totally know how to open a wine bottle without a corkscrew. You should have asked me. I don't. And so what I did was jammed a knife right in there. I'm trying to wiggle that thing out with a knife. I can't get it out. I need a better tool. And so, because some of you are thinking he's going to cut himself. That's right. He probably will. So I went down to my toolbox 
And as I open the lid to my toolbox, it's like glowing angel sounds. <laughs> I've, got, I've got all the tools in there. I got, I got pliers. I've got uh, screwdrivers. I've got electrical tools, plumbing tools. I, I got them all just being, pick me, pick me. They don't even know what I want to use them for, and they want me to pick them. And so I reached in there, and I grabbed a needle nose pliers. And the needle nose pliers went to all the other tools. Na, 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 na. He picked me. And I took that needle nose pliers up, and that needle nose thought he was going to be used for some really important electrical work or, or, or pulling gripping something that I couldn't move. And then he saw the wine bottle, and that player said, Put me back! Put me back! That's not what I made for. I don't want to do it. Some of you think I'm going crazy. <laughs> Here's my point. Did the pliers get to decide how it was used? Who did? The head. The head decided how I was going to use it. It, it. it may not have liked it. It may have wanted to do something completely different. I had a purpose. I, I had a plan and a will, and I elected to choose that players for that purpose. As you and I think about the doctrine of election, as you and I think about the doctrine of predestination, make sure you never divorce it from the effective purpose for which God chose you. Because he didn't elect you to go to heaven. That's great. That's amazing. That is salvation. But you're on earth right now. And he has chosen you for a great work, a purpose that he expects for you to get in line and follow because he's the one that defines our purpose. Everybody good on that? Number three, to be a Christian means that you need to seek God's will. Uh, we have, again, that thesis statement in verse nine. He made known to us the mystery of his will. I, I want you to know, church, this is a really important thing for you and I to focus on as Christians because sometimes, like the illustration with the players, you might have a different plan. Here's some really good news. God knows, the, God knows what's up. God knows the plan. Do you guys know what's going to happen tomorrow? Did, did the people going to work in the two towers on 9-11 know what was going to happen that day? Did God? I'm, I'm glad I'm getting some heads nodding on that. Yeah. Uh, look with me back into the text in verse 4. He says, for he chose us in him when? Everybody got that? Check it out in your Bibles. Underline that. Circle that in your Bibles. God's will, God's purpose has been known by him from before creation, from before time. Now, just for sake of time, I'm not going to go through all the passages in the New Testament that teach us. I'd love to talk about that on a Wednesday morning. I want you to know with great confidence, you should desire to know God's plan and God's will because he has it written and locked down from before creation, he knows. Um, this passage from Romans 12 teaches us not to conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Uh, this past weekend, Saturday, um, Emily let Sadie make pancakes. Sadie's on this new little plan to be a baker. I think it's awesome. She, she, wants to, she made brownies. I'm, I, I actually ran into my last belt loop this morning. So I'm in trouble, you guys. So Sadie is making pancakes, and she gets the mix all up, and she pours it onto the griddle, but then Sadie can't wait to flip it. Like, that's the funnest part of pancakes, right, is flipping it, except they haven't cooked long enough. And so Emily keeps telling her, you got to wait, you got to wait. And Sadie's just, I don't want to wait. I just want to flip the pancake. Who, who, know, who knows how to flip a pancake in my house? Well, Emily does. Who's learning the plan of flipping pancakes? Sadie does. Listen, that, that's you and I as well. God, God knows. God's got the plan. You and I sometimes are like, how oh, much longer? Why, why can't we go? Like, this needs to happen faster. Or I don't know if this is the right plan. Maybe we should be doing... Do you know what you and I need to learn to do? We need to learn to exchange our agenda and will after whose? God's. And this passage teaches us how. You do it by renewing your what? Your mind to think like God thinks. Because remember, Jesus is the what? Jesus is the head. So if you can seek after how he thinks and his will, now you and I will be in touch with his plan. 
To be a Christian means that we learn to seek his will. Um, One last verse I want you to see in this passage before we move to number four. If you look with me in verse 10. Uh, Actually, let's just start in 9 and 10. He says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, verse 10, to be put into effect when? When the times will have reached their fulfillment. Like God had a plan for Jesus all along. All the prophets, all of Israel looked ahead to the Messiah, the promised lamb who could take away sins. And many of them were like, how much longer? When is this thing going to get show on the road? What's the Bible tell us here? God had a plan. God had a will. It needed to wait until the right time, just like Emily's trying to get Sadie. Just wait. Just wait a minute. All right, number four. To be a Christian means you must be led by the Spirit. To be a Christian means you must be led by the Spirit. Uh, If you look with me towards the end of the verses we looked at, verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, who is what? The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to the redemption of those who are God's possession. Here's, Here's how this one works. The only way that the limbs, right, the fingers, the feet, the only way that they know what to do is as long as they're attached to the what? To the head. There has to be a unifying source of life that connects everything together. Everybody get that idea? There's this little lizard that we had in the Caribbean that you would find. And one of the unique things about this lizard is if you scared it or tried to catch it, its tail would pop off. And when the tail pops off, it starts flopping around everywhere. And it makes itself a really good target for birds and critters so that the little lizard can get away. What's the very first thing that happens to that tail when it's detached from the head? Flopping around like a fish. What would happen to us if we get detached from the head? You know what you start to look like? You start looking like a fish flopping around. Because you're not in tune with the life-giving force that unites the whole body together. And do you know what you actually become? You, you become kind of an easy target for the enemy to chase down because you're no longer in tune with the head. And so do you know what the role of the spirit is? The role of the spirit, the reason why God gives us the spirit is because it's the spirit of God that teaches us the mind of Christ. That's why you have the Holy Spirit. Now, the blessings and the riches that come from the Holy Spirit are far more vast than I can cover this morning. What I want you to see is that it is that life-giving feature that keeps you and I connected to the... Have I lost you this morning? Connected to the head. All right, I want you to show you this verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. A little long, but listen to how Paul characterizes the reason why you need the Spirit. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, watch this, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Isn't that interesting? Nobody knows what God's thinking except the Spirit of God knows. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual truths with spiritual words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through how? You guys still with me? The only way you're going to understand the mind of God is through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That is an amazing statement to make. Christian, listen to me. You are able to access God's will if you're following what? Who? If you're following the Spirit. And only if you're following the Spirit. The reason why God gives the church His Spirit is so that it helps us to stay in tune and connected to the headship of Jesus Christ. And so if you're a Christian, it means you need to be led by the Spirit. Last one. Here we go. To be a Christian means that you exist for God's glory.
Now, I know there's a lot of you here that are like, good thing I came to church. This is a pretty basic sermon today. Look at all these. I knew all this before I came in. Listen once more. God made you not for your glory, but for God's glory. Emily made this wonderful rhubarb crisp the other day for dessert. And so I went over to her and I looked right at her hands and I said, good job, hands. Does that sound right to you? Um, my, my son's playing football. He made this great block. Um, the defensive end was going to come in, stopped him. And so after the game, I went up to Micah's feet and I went, nice job, feet. That's not right to you. When you say nice job, when you give an accolade of praise to a person, who do you say it to? You say it to their head, don't you? Because isn't it the head that has orchestrated all of the other events in the body? Listen to me. You're not here for your glory. You're here for the glory of the head. That's why God has gifted you, called you, purposed you, and given you his spirit. Because a Christian means you exist for God's glory. This from Isaiah 43. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You exist for God's glory. And so the last thing I want to point out just before we wrap up this morning is that you might not have noticed this, but these are actually sequential. All of these observations that we're seeing from Ephesians chapter 1, they each influence the other. This is what I mean by that. For you to follow Jesus means you have to first know your purpose. Who defines your purpose? I'm not going to be able to follow Jesus unless I know what my purpose is. But I'm never going to know my purpose unless I know his will. So I need to know what God's will is in order for me to define my purpose. But I'm never going to know the will of God unless I'm in tune with the, with the Spirit of God inside me. The Spirit of God that teaches me, He formed me, He made me, He called me for His glory. And when I, when I can tune my heart now, tune my life to live for His glory, what I want you to see is what that will actually do is influence all of these so that you and I will be able to follow after Jesus' headship. So what does that mean for you and I today? It means this. It means you need to believe the word truth. It starts here. You need to believe the gospel. I, I don't know if everybody here is a Christian. I think it's very possible that, that there could be many here who, who come to church and who are interested and who are learning but you won't ever have a direction in life that brings glory to God until you first believe the gospel. In fact, look with me real quick one more time into Ephesians 13. He says, and you also, no longer talking about Paul and his companions, but the church, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Gospel means good news. Do you know what the good news is? The good news is you're a sinner. And your sin will send you to hell. In fact, it's doing that right now. Every rebellious act and thought apart from the will of God is sending you further and further away from the presence of God. Do you know what that's called? To be absent from the presence of God? What's that called? It's called hell. Except Jesus came and died for you. He died in your place. He died for your sins. Look with me back into the text in verse 7. In him we have redemption. That word means to be reclaimed, like ransom. Set free is what it means. To be set free through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. It starts here, church. This is right where it begins. You need to believe the gospel. And I don't mean believe like in an intellectual ascent. I mean believe like place your full trust in Jesus. When it comes to your righteous standing before God, listen to me clearly. You are not a good person. Every single one of us wishes we are. And as long as we compare ourselves with our crummy neighbor, boy, I'm a pretty good person. You're not. You're fooling yourself. The sins that you have, they continue to heap up. The sins that you have, they continue to separate you from God. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have a hope in this life. And so when we say believe the word of truth, we mean Change the headship of your life from you to him 
Amen? Amen. Number two is this. If you've done this, then position your life under Jesus' headship. That means all of your life. If he's your head, if he's your Lord, you should probably do what he says. Otherwise, why are you calling him Lord? I don't think you know how that word is to be used. You're using it wrong. And I have just three questions that I'll put up here on the screen. They're also in your notes. Um, do you, can you answer this? God's designed me to glorify him by what? Can you answer that? That's a question that you should answer. If you never thought of that, my life is here to glorify God. Do you know how that is? It's unique to you. We'll have overlap between us here at church, but God made you. He predestined you for a specific reason. Just like that funny little needle-nosed players had a specific reason. You have a purpose on this earth to bring him glory. Can, do you know what it is? Can you answer that? Second question, do you know God's will for your life? Now, originally when I wrote that, I ended it there, but I thought, you know, I'd rather that the Christian be able to answer it for today. Sometimes I might make my plans for tomorrow. I might make my plans for five years. <laughs> I asked Emily that. I said, um, we, were, we were talking about life and whatnot. She's like, I stopped planning my life a long time ago. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom in that, isn't there? So yeah, you need to know your purpose, right? You need to know God's will, but you ought to know it specific to today. Because guess what you have? You have today. I don't know if you have tomorrow. We'll see. Do you know what God's will is for you today? That's a whole other sermon. We'll talk about that another time. Last question. How are you listening and learning from the Holy Spirit? Because if it's true that God's given you the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance, right? Your, your salvation in Christ Jesus is proven by the virtue of having the Spirit. The Spirit is also the one who's leading you and teaching you into the will of God. So how are you making efforts to learn? How are you making efforts to be quiet and still and listen? How are you making efforts to put aside the rubbish of the news and the world around you so that you learn to think in a, in a transformed way in your mind and be able to recognize what God's good and pleasing and perfect will is in your life. It's not going to do enough coming to church. This is not enough on one hour a week on a Sunday morning. That's a bit of a challenge for us today, is it not? I hope as we get opportunity to look through this master class on Christianity that we don't ever leave this thesis statement at the beginning because if you are a Christian today, it means Jesus is your what? Let's say good and loud, church. It means Jesus is our head. Amen. Let's pray.